Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. Samuel Chu is in Hollywood, but not of it. He doesn't work in the entertainment industry. He's a nationally recognised organiser for social change. So in real terms, his work has resulted in free school lunch to over 60,000 low-income students in Minnesota, universal breakfasts for over 4 million students across 1,000 public school campuses in Texas, his work across the healthcare and mortgage fields to help more people get healthcare and to protect them from foreclosure after the 2013 financial crisis has been recognised and awarded. He's been recognised with the LGBT Pride Award for the City of Los Angeles for his leadership in promoting and organising religious support for LGBT civil rights and marriage equality. He was the first straight person to head a statewide lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender supportive organisation. He is a good man for a living. That's what he does. Welcome, Samuel, too. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It was a lengthy introduction, but you've done so much. What have I missed out? Um, That's a good question. I think that it's always interesting to me to hear somebody else interpret the kind of things that I'm doing. And but I think uh, some people might find it interesting. I used to be a minister, and uh, I was uh, I pastored a Presbyterian church in Los Angeles for many years, and uh, so. I come from a family of uh, pastors and ministers, and so I have taken a lot of twists and turns to get to where I am today. What, so do you think that it was just growing up in, that, in a pastoral environment that, that was what first encouraged you into this area? You grew up with certain values that were just a natural part of your life? I think that it's, it's in some way, it's not just growing up in an environment, but really having very, very compelling examples and models from my parents and my families. 
my father, actually, both of my parents have very interesting stories. I won't go into the details of it. My, my dad was an orphan, uh, was homeless for a time when he was young, and then sort of worked his way back into uh, schools and then was taken in by a church community and became a minister. And I was actually born in a storefront church at a fishing village in Hong Kong, in the eastern part of Hong Kong Island uh, in the 70s. And so it's not just being in the environment but really watching from a very young age the building and creating of communities uh, that really help people and strengthen communities and families. And so that runs in the family, runs in the, in the blood. And these microphones are very sensitive, so if you're projecting because of that, there's no need to project. We can just speak at a conversation level. So, so there is something about growing up in an environment where these values are self-evident and you live them on a, on a daily basis instead of just being fed, clothed, educated, and, and so on. What are some of the things that you do on a, on a day-to-day basis at the moment, for example? So I think I work on a lot of projects, and unless you look through the list of things you just mentioned, uh, some might look at that and say that, well, he just works on all kinds of issues. Uh, Most of them are somewhat more progressive, they're more civil rights oriented. But really for me, what is consistently, I always think of it when I wake up in the morning, there's one thing I do, is that I build relationships that leads to people getting things done together around issues that matters to them. May it be civil rights, marriage equality, access to healthcare, public education. All of these things really come from this deeper, consistent day-to-day thing that I do, which is sitting down with people, listening to their stories, listening to their dreams, and then figuring out a way to train and teach them how to get to their dreams. So it's a long way from the shores of Hong Kong to L.A. Tell me about that path for you. So I left um, Hong Kong in the summer of 1990. So I arrived in Los Angeles, I believe, on August 19th, 1990 at L.A. International Airport. I actually left my family when I was very young, partly because my father was partly responsible for supporting and organizing the student protest in Tiananmen Square back in 1989. And when the massacre happened on June 4th in 1989, there was hundreds and thousands of people who escaped from the massacre in Tiananmen Square. When my father built the Underground Railroad that smuggled many of them out of mainland China, put them in safe houses in Hong Kong, and then sent them to Western country through the embassies in Hong Kong. And so as a part of the fallout, actually my parents and my family had decided that they were going to stay in Hong Kong no matter what happened to them, but that there were some danger and threats that they were under. So under the recommendations of both the British government and then some of the other allies that my dad had worked with and colleagues, my parents decided to send me away uh, just in case that something happened to them. So I left them in 1990 and arrived in Los Angeles. How old were you then? I was 12. So what are your memories of what was happening around that time? Well, I have a lot of memories. I actually, leading up to leaving, uh, when this, I, I remember uh, being alongside my dad at every turn of 
strategizing, thinking about the protests. I didn't go up to China with him, but you know, I was really watching from clip close and, and help organize and participate in all the marches that was happening in Hong Kong. And then I remember actually spending weekends in these safe houses where these students and labor leaders have escaped from the Tiananmen Square were being held, at least or hidden, in Hong Kong in these houses in, in the um, outskirts of Hong Kong. And I would spend weekends actually playing soccer with them, uh, playing Chinese chess and hanging out with them while they waited for their visa and refugee status to get approved. And uh, so for me, this again, this has never been a just a secondhand experience. I think part of what I grew up with was in the midst of uh, watching the real impact and devastation that uh, people have experienced in their lives and then seeing how we can play a role in rebuilding and expanding and building on the on those stories. Wow. Your parents are still in Hong Kong? Yes, my whole family still lives in Hong Kong. I have uh, both of my parents, my older brother and his family are also there. Okay. So who looked after you when you arrived? Uh, interesting story. Uh, the man who came to pick me up at LAX, his name is Andrew, who I still uh, keep in touch with, who eventually became my legal guardian. Uh, so my family transferred my guardianship to Andrew and his family. So I lived with him during my high school years uh, when I be, until I graduated. But I have actually never met Andrew before. Andrew is someone my dad had met at a Chinese restaurant in Paris in December of 1989, um, he became one of the people that helped uh, settle the refugees and folks who escaped from China here in the United States. And so he became a natural contact uh, when I arrived. He picked me up at the airport and eventually became basically my family. That's, I'm, I'm, it's just such an extraordinary story, right? Um, so you went through high school. Yep. And... Did you decide at that stage that you were going to be a pastor or you just went to college? And what did you do? So as you can imagine, uh, having left my family in that early age, even though there was a really deep um, uh, sort of connection to the traditions and what has um, led to my family sending me away and then the, the work that they were involved in, um, you know, I was kind of a, a, a little bit of a mess. I was a first-generation immigrant. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know anybody. I came here to the States and, and really had you know, a challenge, um, had a lot of challenges, I think, adjusting and sort of assimilating. Uh, I then actually went to college at UC San Diego, and, um, and I think that this is where one of the moments in the transition of going into college and going into a new environment part of my own upbringing and learning sort of resurface. Um, I actually accidentally uh, joined a Bible study and turned it into a church um, as a freshman in college. So I was never paid by the, 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 the group. I was never an official employee, but I led a congregation that was mostly young adults and college students that grew from like 15 people to 300 the first year I was there. So I started essentially by accident preaching and building a spiritual religious communities uh, around the campus of UCSD as an 18 year old. And, uh, and I remember looking back and, and people in that community would say that like, it just seemed like I was 
destined to do that. I came in and they said, you seem like you know what you're doing and you should take over. And we built a community that actually ended up to be pretty large, about three and then eventually 500 people. And uh, so that sort of got me revived, like sort of revived my whole connection to the family business, sort of. The family business, all of that. Yeah. So Destiny, you're a religious man. Does, how much does Destiny play a part in your belief system, your value system? I think that that has evolved and changed through time. I should probably say that I actually no longer um, identify as a, a, a Christian, for example. Uh, I now work actually for a Jewish organization. I'm not, I'm not Jewish, uh, even though I, uh, my friends make fun of me about the fact that I am the national organizer for the Jewish response to hunger. So whenever I travel the country for uh, that effort, uh, I always have to clarify to people that I'm, I'm not what you probably were expecting for the Jewish response to hunger because I'm a Southern Baptist raised boy from British colonial time in Hong Kong that was a Presbyterian minister. But now I'm in the face of the Jewish response to hunger. So it's a little confusing for people. But I actually would clarify, would say that I am actually not a particularly religious person uh, in my personal life at this stage. I continue to be driven and rooted in communities and organizations and institutions that reflect the spirituality and the traditions of various cultures and people. But I have found myself now sort of moving fluidly back and forth in various kind of spiritual community. And in a lot of ways, I would say that that's not really about destiny, but it's about community. And in a lot of ways, what I am doing now is about connecting the kind of traditions, community, and destinies across very different uh, people and, and cultures. I want to talk to you about community. Yeah. And you can not answer any question in this. There's no pressure. Well, what am I going to do? Tie your hands behind your back for heaven's sake. But uh, REM, leaving my religion. Was it a moment for you? Was it a gradual thing? I think it was both. What I consider looking back was that I grew up in a very traditional conservative Southern Baptist uh, household. My father went uh, as a Southern Baptist minister, retired after being the senior pastor and founding pastor of the community for 37 years. But I didn't know what Southern Baptist was. I grew up in Hong Kong. For many years, we just thought that Southern Baptist meant we were in the southern part of China. And, you know, nobody ever explained to us about the cultural aspect of what it meant to be Southern Baptist. And so... And what is that cultural aspect? Well, I didn't discover it until I came to the United States. I didn't realize that it was something that was incarnated in American history and culture. And there were some pretty dark things that came with being Southern that I never realized until I came to the United States. The same thing I think could be said when I went, uh, I went to seminary here in Los Angeles. Um, I, by the time I went to the church that I stayed for eight years in Koreatown here in Los Angeles, which was the Presbyterian Church, which is another church I have actually no history or background in. It, I, I always tell people it took me two years to learn how to spell the word Presbyterian. And it was a community that was 80% recent, mostly undocumented immigrant from Latin and Central and Southern America. 
And so here I was, a Southern Baptist boy at a Presbyterian church that were mainly Spanish speakers in the middle of Koreatown in Los Angeles. By then, I began to realize that what the path that I was on was never about doctrines, theologies, or even a particular kind of theological or spiritual practices. The path that I've been on and I'm still on has always been becoming a part of a very specific community, either by geographic, by language, by culture, or by experience, and then helping to create the community within it that reflected both the history but the future of that place. And so when I first stepped into Emmanuel Presbyterian right here on Wusha Boulevard, these were not people that I communicate. I, I still don't speak a word of Spanish, by the way. People always make fun of me for having spent nine years at a church that was primarily Spanish-speaking and actually pastoring there for that time and actually not being able to speak the language. And I think that is a great example of how that the relationships and the way in which that we become co-creator of that community together means that it wasn't just about the language. And it didn't matter that most of the folks who came to that church from Latin America who were immigrants were mostly Catholics. They found a home in a 1920s French Gothic cathedral in the middle of their community and neighborhood because it reflected what they were looking for at this moment of their lives. And I think that that ultimately is my theology, quote unquote, of community. Do you think that because religion seems to me to be a very different thing between Australia, where I'm from, yeah. and and the United States. Um, the tithing, for example, and uh, um, some of the more extreme expressions of religion that I wouldn't even begin to understand. A belief that supports actions that I would describe from my upbringing as an Anglican as unchristian, and I'm not an Anglican now either. But when you think of Christian behaviours of do good deeds, uh, volunteerism, supportive behaviour, good strong families, raising healthy kids, a lot of this I don't see in religion anywhere in the world now. Was that one of the drivers for you to find community outside a religious community? I, I think that actually that's a great question. Having come from also from the outside of the American religious communities, this is actually one of the key reasons why I decided uh, when I left the church and decided I didn't want to be in the pulpit and be a minister in a Christian community anymore, and I went and started working on the LGBT movement. Um, this as specific, a man. as a straight man religious man, as a Chinese and Asian American, which all those things were somewhat peculiar uh, when it comes to making that decision to go into the, the LGBT movement. But one of the things that is exactly what brought me into that work was that I wanted to specifically undo the connection between religion being used as the basis for religious but also civic, public, political oppression of a particular group of people here in America, which has been the historic trend, which is that the work to exclude or discriminate against LGBT people has been based primarily on religious grounds. Yes. 
And so in 2008 and 2009, when I finally decided that I wanted to to, to take on this uh, and be a part of the movement to not just legalize same-sex marriage, but really undo the harm that religion has done to this particular community, that was actually exactly why I decided to move into that work, was that I believe that the answer to religious community being the driving force to discriminate is religious community being the driving force to undo and counter that harm. And so I think that in some way that has driven a lot of my uh, decision in terms of where I want to go, who I want to be around, and what kind of work I want to work on, is how do you leverage and harness the inclusivity, the power, the healing, the transformative power of religion and religious communities, and then putting them to work in the right places. One man or woman's ability to bully another person is something I have always found extraordinary. That it's not that the people who are perpetrating that unless and they are not mentally ill are doing so with the support of some members of their family or community. And I'm not only talking about childhood bullying, I'm talking about racial bullying, mm-hmm. gender bullying, both as children and as adults. Is that the kind of fight that strikes you as something that's just untenable, it just should no longer exist? I think that um, that, at the core, at the heart of it, explains a lot of the injustices and the inequalities that we see, uh, large and small, in our country, in this particular city. It's at the heart of it, there is a imbalance, there's an inequality not just of income and wealth, but an inequality of power. And I think that you see that not just in racial conversation, in gender discriminations, but really all across the board at the heart of it is that there are folks and people and families and communities that have historically and continue to be oppressed by being excluded from exercising their powers. And that, for me, is what drives me. I'm not the kind of person where I am not going to uh, go out and quote-unquote empower other people by doing what they can do for themselves. That I think a lot of times is what charity becomes when it's done wrong. That we go out and volunteer and do something for other people to make us feel better about the fact that we have more power than they do. And if you look across the work that I do now, may it be organizing for the Jewish response to hunger, helping schools, students, families who fight for uh, public benefits that are that they're entitled to, that they're eligible to, to work around um, the rights of homeowners who are losing their houses in the Great Depression in 2008, and actually teaching and training them to help each other fight for their rights against the banks and the government, to uh, people who are uh, denied this basic rights to uh, marriage and to Uh, human dignity, they were not just about doing something for other people. What drives me is waking up in the morning thinking that every one of us have this potential that must be realized and that we have this opportunity and a right to exercise 
power around what it is that matters to us. And when you begin to connect the dots, you, me, us together, and the communities that we are a part of together, that's where I think is most exciting and interesting to me. Not to be a uh, someone who uh, do the work to make me feel better, but to see people transform and emerge as their own person and as community come together and fight for their own interests and need. That's ultimately is what I think we need. When you have those moments where you reach a roadblock, you reach resistance, you reach rejection, how do you get around that? Can you think of something that's happened recently where you've had to change your MO or draw on some reserves? I think that this is what makes my work continues to be uh, interesting and stimulating for me is that it never is the same because when your premise of your work is not just helping and doing something for other people, but really creating the capacity in people to not only see their hopes and dreams, but to realize them, that means that every time I take on a campaign and an issue, it's different because it's about the people and the relationships and the community more than it is about just the end goals. And so uh, I remember uh, you mentioned a story about the, uh, the communities in Minnesota where uh, I remember when I first got there as part of Mazon, which is a Jewish response to hunger that I'm a part of, one of the things that we did was not to sell them on what needs to be done, in Minnesota. One of the first things we did was to go out and listen and talk to people in the community on the ground about their experience of where they see hunger happening. And one of the things I will always remember is one of the first few stories that we heard that led us to this campaign that we did three years ago now was a teacher and some parents telling us that in their school where their kids go to or where they work, they saw kids who are on the national school lunch program who are poor but not poor enough to get free meals had to make a co-payment every day, 40 cents per meal when they eat. And they saw every day kids who dig their food, get their tray, walk through the line, and then when they can't make the 40 cents payment, when it says that their account is overdrawn, they have their food taken away from them and dumped in the trash in front of all their friends. How can that? And that happens every day oh. in schools all across the state of Minnesota at that point and then all across the country. And part of what made and continue to keep me in this work is that these things happen every day and are witnessed every day and part of what allows it to happen is a collective and individual sense of powerlessness. Because at the same time, all our communities is doing food drives. They're volunteering at food banks. But this is what happens at the same time in front of them every day. And so without going into all the details of the story, uh, out of those conversations, 
the Jewish community that I was working with and organizing brought together the broader Minnesota community and said that we have to stop this. We have to end any public shaming practices, and we have to make sure that if they're poor enough to actually get a subsidized, reduced price lunch, we ought to make sure that nobody's ever turned away and the state ought to support and make sure the money's there for everybody to eat. Now, you would think that that seems pretty simple. Yeah, but... Hungry kids, the resources to do it, a group who wants to make it happen. We wrote a legislation that puts $4 million a year to pay for 62,000 kids on that reduced price program for the whole state of Minnesota. And it says that there's no longer any turnaway or public shaming. We actually lost in the legislature the first year we ran that bill. This is a state legislature? Yep. And the reason is that many of the people who are involved in the running of the business of school meals in the school site, in the school districts, and in the state did not want to admit that a problem existed. Because the way that we were pushing for the solution to address a problem that embarrassed the people who were doing it. So the school meals, lunch workers, the nutritionists, the school superintendent did not want to admit that they were shaming kids. How did you get around that? So that was, to answer the original question, is to confront the story and the fact that it happens is one thing. But to then get confronted by the reality of why it continues to happen, which is that it's not because people want kids to go hungry but because all the issues we seize are results of the politics and the political condition that the exists. Need, the need to be seen as right exactly. more than anything. And that competing political interest and self-interest is what allows something as obvious and as clear as hunger and childhood hunger to persist in America. And that is the point where I really feel like my work and my... Uh, involvement and training and organizing of people really come into play. That's the moment that it becomes clear where it clicks in people's mind. This is not just about issues and resources. It's not because we don't have enough food. It's not because we don't have a way of getting food to the people who need it. But it's the politics, the exercising of power that makes this what it is. And to fix it requires us to build power. And so we actually ended up, long story short, the ending of the story, we had a great ending. Uh, the community and the synagogues, the Jewish community and the broader community came back together after we lost the first vote in the first year and said that we're not going to let this one go. We're going to call their bluff, and if they say that it doesn't exist, we're going to make sure that they admit publicly that this is what is happening in their schools. So we actually uh, came together, did a report and filed a freedom of information request for every school and every school district in the state of Minnesota. And we essentially called a bluff and went to the newspaper and made the headline that the Minnesota Tribune and all the major newspapers that says that actually 65% of the schools in the state, almost close to 70, had a written policy of turning kids away when they can't pay or when they have a lunch debt. So, Within 12 hours of our report hitting the press, we got calls from every legislative leaders, the governor's office, and the superintendent who were opposing us before and saying that we are going to support your damn bill 
if you just stop hitting us in the press. And so within a 24-hour period, we got a new bill. We got the allocation. The governor came out and said, we're going to fund your $4 million a year, which is $8 million in this cycle. Done. And I look back and think about that moment. The most, uh, the clearest moment where we were stuck was also the most pivotal moment where we collectively in the community that I was working with realized what this was really about and how we we're really going to change the world. And so I always look for those moments of barriers, of stuckness, because that's where the real transformation, I think, happens. And so today, many of them still do food drive. They still volunteer at food pantries, but that is a very small part. They, over the course of a year and a half, made sure that 62,000 kids got a meal a day for five days a week for nine months of the year. You will not food bank and food drive your way anywhere close to that impact. That's just extraordinary. And yeah, getting back to that original question of when you face a roadblock or an objection or you're, you're required to turn deep, for you, that is the pivotal moment. That's the moment that needs the most examination. And that's when we finally are forced to say that you know, are we just people of good intentions doing things to make ourselves feel better? Or are we really going to confront the underlying causes and issues that are at work? And what is it going to take for us to do that? Because America is a very philanthropic country. It is. There are billions of dollars donated from very wealthy people yeah. to various causes. Uh, but as you say, it's that that blockage, that that lack of getting to the real people. I I have this thing called Ziplocs of Love, mm. where every two months my friends come over and they bring ten things each, yeah. and we put them into Ziploc bags and keep them in the trunks of our cars and hand them out to the homeless. Water, soaps, hand wipes, you know, stuff that people might make their lives a little bit easier. It's a tiny little thing. Um, one woman rang and said, I want to be a part of this, but I can't actually come. But can you come to my home? I have some things for you. And what she had were boxes and boxes of newborn baby nappies mm -hmm. that her baby had grown out of very quickly. Now, on the face of it, we're not going to put newborn baby diapers. We're not going to put those into yeah. a Ziploc bag. Yeah. It took me four weeks to find somewhere I could take these to give them to donate them yep. so that a mother in poverty without access to these mm -hmm. could have them. It was four boxes. It was nothing on the big scheme of things. But that's that kind of yeah. thing that you're talking about. Yeah. It's like, let's just do this. Yeah. And it, I think it's a healthy tension and sometimes that is a tension that I think we don't live with openly and clearly enough as a community, as a society in America particularly. As you said, there are trillion dollars that have gone into international aids. We raise you know, philanthropic money like no others in the history of you know, uh, our human history. The problem is, is that at times that itself becomes the end of what we're doing. Because that's enough. Yeah. I have given... You have received the end. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, getting back to the, the, the questions of, like, the issue of hunger and food insecurity here in America, 
Um, one of the things I always have to point out, you know, as I travel from Mazon, by the way, Mazon is actually the Hebrew word for sustenance. So that's why the, the National Jewish Response of Hunger is named Mazon. And I always have to walk this very fine line when I speak to synagogues and Jewish community across the country, which I do every week. Is I have to tell them, I said, let me just be very real with you. When you think about hunger, you think about donating food, food pantries, volunteering to pack food in food banks, and making sandwiches. I know, and we know for a fact, that if you add up together every volunteer efforts, every food pantry in this country, every food bank operating in these large warehouses in every state and every community, if you add all the efforts up together, and they're functioning at 100% capacity and effectiveness. It adds up to be about 3% of the solution that is needed for the people who are hungry in this country. 3%. 3%. And, and there's always this stunt, so hush over you know, the crowd where they hear that and they're going like, wait, that's like 99% of what we talk about when we think about hunger. When we watch TV and see these ads of children being hungry, and what they ask us to do is we donate. And we go to church or go to synagogue or go to school. What the speaker always tells us is volunteer at the food pantry. You drive down in Sunset Boulevard, the billboard says donate to the food bank. If that's only 3%, why is 99% of our efforts and attention paid to only 3% of the response? And that's where I think this tension is difficult and why I have chosen the work that I do specifically. It's that sometimes we get stuck in that 3% for a variety of reasons, for selfish reasons, for the reason thinking that you know we can't make a difference beyond that. We're told that people don't need our help outside of that. We're told that people who find that not enough are just lazy and they get demonized as the group who are living off of the government or somebody else. But at the end of the day, just like that story about Minnesota where they were volunteering at food pantry while kids were being turned away from their school meals, there is a disconnect that happens. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those acts of kindness that are small and short-term and immediate. Because often those are the last safety net resort that people have. When they go to the food pantry, it's probably because they have run out of all the other options. But if that's where we get stuck, then I don't think that we're ever going to get to the place where we can see real change. And my work is how to connect people who are both experiencing the poverty and the hunger and the tragedies that are day to day the people who have the intention and the willingness to get involved to create change, to say that this is not a dichotomy. This is not us versus them, us helping you, yeah. us depending on you. This is about us collectively realizing that we can change the underlying cause and the system that make these the daily realities. And we can eliminate that and we can change that, but we have to do it together. I would love to see your bucket list. <laughs> Your let me let me turn this around a little bit. Yeah. So we talk about community. Yeah. 
and you're working with a lot of other people, with a support network, with Mazon and Samuel Chu personally, do you have, and what is the importance to you of a personal network of friends, family, that make you hum along? Yeah. I think that's a, that's a, that's a really um, important and I think evolving question for me, but it is at the heart of, I think, who I am as a person. And, and I don't think it's a surprise because um, I've had to create my own family along the way. Um, I, I think it's not an accident that I have made my work and career out of creating community because I think it is, it goes hand in hand with my own personal experience of needing to create community. Um, I would say this about my personal network. I'm probably the most introverted social person I, I know. Uh, and people never believe me when I tell them that I'm extremely introverted. Um, but you can talk about your work until the camera. Exactly. Start. I get it. And I can also do one-on-one conversation. Like if I just think, you know, uh, don't put me in a party or any social environment, mm-hmm. I can have a conversation forever uh, with one person. And but I think that the heart of that is this: is that I think that. Part of what drives me is my need to continue to find meaning, to carve out that sense of connections and meaning with other people. And I think that that's a basic human need. And for me, having left my family and then also living in the shadows of both my parents having broken, you know, having very difficult childhood, having no family to depend on, having fought their way through their own childhood without the support, that I think is personally underneath what drives me. It's this basic instinct to connect and create relationships. Most people are doing that on OkCupid. You've chosen a more global path. So do you suffer for your work? I think that's a tension that I've always lived in because the same way that you look at my experience of having my family, having left them when I was 12, one could also look back and say that that is a devastating decision to have to make when you devote your life to a larger cause, a larger hope uh, for not just yourself and your own family, and then making a decision to say that I'm going to send my child away. And I didn't really have a say in that, but it was in, immensely trans, you know, life-forming and, and devastating. I remember I used to cry you know, just you at night. Yeah, at night, you know, just laying in my bed thinking that, like, what am I supposed to do? And so I think that that is always a tension that I experience. I think one of the things that has been uh, interesting for me is that I think religion for a long time provided a layer of reasons and comfort. Because in religious, I think, spiritual practices and traditions, you have a sense of this destiny of what God 
has ordained and and destined for you and the purpose. And so you don't have to worry about that yourself because it's yeah. all yeah. Yeah. But I also find that incredibly um, insufficient as I gotten older, as I begin to reflect more deeper, as I have been exposed to more of the experience and the uh, relationships is that uh, that actually eventually ran out of steam for me. I feel like that that was a box that was too small. And so I think what I then really have come to grasp with is that um, there is a inseparable nature to my work and my personal life. I think where I am today um, does what is reflected in my personal life and in my work is that they go hand in hand in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I invest in the relationship and the community that I work with, but I also receive from them a lot of the sense of acceptance and recognitions and love that I get in return. Uh, it is not perfect uh, because no people and no communities are perfect, but part of what I think I'm learning, I'm still learning, is that you know? It's it's sometimes it's a lonely place, and when you are in the position that I am, where I get to work with the privilege and the honor of being a part of so many different communities, it also means that I'm not part of any one community. And so I definitely think that it's a it's a it's a tension, it's a line that I walk, um, and in some way I take comfort in the fact that the struggle in a way continues the evolution because this identity this feeling of being an outsider is both why I'm effective in working with various community but it's also what drives me continuously to build more relationship to continue to search out new people and new connections two things have occurred recently that I'd like to get your input on one of them, it was a friend's birthday party last night and she arranged a potluck and I arrived, her husband had asked me to get a birthday cake so I picked that up on the way and surprise and she said, oh I'm so glad you're here. Uh, the other eight people have just cancelled half an hour before and it was potluck, right? So, you know, we basically... At least there was cake. There was cake and there was tuna salad um, and we had a wonderful night. But it, struck, it, it made me think about that notion of we must think of others when we're making our own decisions. We must think, I am only one, but what if everyone behaves the same way? And the second thing was talking to a girlfriend this morning who was very, very seriously ill last year. And we were talking about the different ways that people respond to that. Yeah. And the way we say, aren't they brave? And the way some people called once, how are you? And you go, oh, I'm fine. And then they don't call again. And the different friends who will turn up to take you to appointments, to give food, to, to do these things. So where these two events, the party where people decided not to come and the sick person who has um, 500 friends on Facebook but a handful of them could actually turn up. Are we losing our humanity? I would say that we're both losing it, and I think we're struggling to hang on and recognize it 
day to day within ourselves and each other. Um, I think that those stories does not surprise me. I think is um, I th- this is what makes I mean, those story makes me think of this. Um, I, I was born and raised in a culture, um, in Chinese culture, and particularly in um, our really family traditions that is distinctively different than American culture, which is that you find and derive your identity and meaning by being a part of the family. Meaning that there's no such thing as your self-individual purpose and identity that only exists when you fit and fulfill the roles and obligations you have to other people in the family. Right. And, and you, but I'm going to take you, I mean, from the age of 12, you had to create your own family. Yeah. So within, culturally, within that Chinese framework, that was very interesting for you to do. I'm sorry to no. interrupt you, but I had to... That is exactly, and I think that I, I mean, the reason why I think those stories you just shared was so interesting to me is because I live at the crossroad of these two. Because... I now live and reside here. I have left behind my family. And if, according to traditional Chinese culture, I am lost. I'm basically not who I'm supposed to be by the simple virtue of the fact that I am not actively fulfilling my presence, my role, and my obligation as part of my immediate family and extended family. And there are specific reasons why that is. But that is a tension that I do feel because at the same time, I've been educated and raised here in American culture where I'm told that I am supposed to find my own path, my own purpose, make my I, own friends and my own people. And, team. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I don't think that the, the, our true sense of humanity at the end of the day, I don't think exists on one or the other. I think that living in the in-between is partly where we're meant to be. Uh, I think that um, as I reflect back on um, my own experience, um, I think that the inability for us to recognize our own humanity and the humanity in each other has gotten to a point where we just don't know how to interact and relate and be friends to each other anymore. And, and that's, I think, is a real breakdown. One of the ways that I actually was talking to a few of my coworkers and my staff here, um, you know, we talk about these things like, you know, uh, you're right that, you know, I have, you know, I don't know, 4,000 friends on Facebook. Um, I was looking at my phone the other day, there's 15,000 entry on my phone. It takes a while to load when I look for somebody. But in all those facade of connections and relationships, um, we have lost touch, I think, with how to create a thick network of relationship that we embed ourselves and get ourselves entangled in. Mm -hmm. So much of our relationship, we maintain that sense of it's just, you know, it's me. I have the freedom, I have the choice, I can choose to cancel on you, I can choose not to be there or be there for you according to what I need and what my priorities are. And I think that that's kind of what Facebook and Twitter is. 
I put it out there. I control. You can consume it whatever ways you want to, but it's of a one-way conversation and a one-way dialogue. But we blame social media. You know, this was happening a long time before social media. Yeah. This, the drive towards the individual, my relationship with one other person. You know, and as a single woman in Australia, I face this quite a lot. You know, people, my friends would call me and say, "Oh, John and I went to." And John is not a real name. John is a made-up name for the purposes of this story. <laughs> Otherwise, every John back home is going to be screaming at me. You know, John and I went to a really great restaurant the other night. You should try it. And I'm, and I'm like, "Well, I'd love to. You can invite me. I'm not going to go on my own. I mean, I will go on my own. But you know, John and I went to a concert the other night. It was." so good. Well, would it have been so hard for you to buy an extra ticket from time to time? Not that you want to be the third wheel all the time, but there's so much about this, the individual relationship. Yeah. If you're cooking a meal, it's just as easy to invite another person or persons around yeah. without it being a charity situation yeah. where you're just sharing stuff. Yeah. But I, I get it as well because people work so hard. If they don't put that time into nurturing their relationship, then it will go down the tube. Yeah, but I think that that you point out you point out something and you put your finger on something that is really important. When you all have an individual me-focused culture, then when you go out and pursue relationship. It automatically sets you into a place where I think American culture is very obsessed about intimacy and intimate relationship. That's why we have Tinder, we have Match.com, we have ways to find not just a physical, but to find that one person who's going to meet all your needs. Exactly, and I always remember uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who uh, bless his soul. Um, I don't know how familiar with his work, but you know he passed away a few years back, and he was speaking at at a uh, graduation, a, uh, a, a graduation I think in one of the East Coast schools, and he said that when he looks at married couples, people who are in love with each other, get married, and then uh, and they go to therapy because they argue and argue and argue, and when they go to therapy, they're arguing and they think they're arguing about sex, you know, about money, about how to raise kids, about. You know, like uh, they don't talk enough. They talk too much. You know, you're not listening to me. And he said that what the couple is really fighting about is that they're saying to each other that you're not enough people for me, and that you alone is not enough people for all the things that we need from other people, and that. What we traditionally see in American as sort of partner, partner, spouses, and kids in a house is not a family. That's a very vulnerable survival unit, and that you need more people. And I think that that's the skill and that's the layer of humanity that we have lost and struggle with now. Is that we spend so much of our time looking to fulfill our needs in one person. That we forget that we need more people, and that then goes back to really the work that I do is that I'm helping people, teaching them, creating opportunity for them to be more people for each other, and that's the work that I think is worth doing. Samuel Chu, this has been extraordinary. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for talking to me and listening. What an exciting podcast. You've been listening to Tate Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audio Boom comes Covert a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.